0: Please open your Bibles with me to the letter of Paul to the church in Colossae, the book of Colossians, chapter 2. Today I want to read verses 1 through 7, and the focus of our study will be primarily on verses 6 and 7 continuing our walk in Christ. Colossians 2, the word of the Lord says to us, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from The full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Father, we humbly ask, O God, that you would teach us this day from your eternal word and by the illuminating and empowering, the convicting, the instructing, the comforting, the guiding and counseling work of your precious Spirit to us, Father. Lord, enable us to see how great a work, how great a salvation, how great a Savior we have in Christ that we may be so encouraged and inflamed to continue in him, to walk in him, to persevere in him. Bless this time, Father, for your ultimate glory, and, O Father, for our desperate need and the good of our souls. In Jesus' holy name, amen. You may be seated. In our study so far of this, this very rich and, and insightful letter of really fundamentally the, the glorious sufficiency, the supremacy of Christ in his person, in his work he has accomplished on our behalf. I just I, I must briefly reemphasize several of these, these foundational truths in preparation. Remember, in in chapter one, verses fifteen to twenty, we we read through and looked at this this glorious christological hymn of Christ, where where Paul focused primarily on the supremacy of Christ as as manifested in creation, in his death, in his resurrection, which then gives rise to this new created order. And central in this hymn is the affirmation that in Christ. All things are held together. They are sustained by none other than Christ himself. And it is then in the light of this magnificent, completed work of Christ that Paul strongly urges these saints and us to remain faithful to this same gospel that was brought to them by Paul through Epaphras. And from this Christological confession and foundation, Paul he really exposes to us his pastoral heart, his, his pastoral side and care for these beloved saints in Colossae. And the role in, in verses 24 through 29 is one who is called to suffer for the body in proclaiming this great mystery in Christ and expressing his deep concern for the saints in this region. And he carries this all the way through verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 that we just read. And then he concludes with an encouragement on the firmness of the faith of the Colossians. The good discipline that they had and their stability of their faith in Christ. And now we we come to to what has been called the the pivotal verses, the summary sentence in verses 6 and 7 that that give us the the basic teaching, but also what he's going to get into in the main thrust of this letter and Paul by by way of introduction here is describing the means in which a church should live and thrive under under his apostolic authority and how each member of Christ church is to to mature in knowledge and of course as he has established this church under his headship to grow in him and these two verses as i as i said are are the hinge of what Paul has powerfully set down as, as the foundation, the, the indicative for his argument up to this point, and, and positive, very profound instruction that's not going to only serve as, as a basis for the attack on the Colossian heresy or any bogus spirituality that may threaten the church even today, but they are also key characteristics in the way the Christians should be faithful to the apostolic foundations that have been handed down that faith that has been handed down once for all as Jude 3 says but we must be very careful in not letting this the apparent simplicity of this single sentence really prohibit us from from understanding and embracing the significance in these necessary commands these imperatives it is oh So much more than a simple exhortation to our faithfulness and perseverance. But before we examine this, and looking further, I was cheating a little bit, looking further in verses 8 to 23, just to get kind of a mindset of the church in Colossae, what they were like, and what we can extrapolate from Scripture, not not some far-gone speculation But we see that they were stable in the faith they had received. They were disciplined in understanding the gospel that Epaphras brought to them and that the Lord had opened up their hearts to believe in. And from these verses, Lord willing, we will examine in the coming weeks, we can see some of the characteristics of the false teaching that was coming in. These believers had zealous hearts for deeper things of the Lord. They saw a challenge before them. They had a call to the fullness in their spiritual life and experience of Christ. They had an earnestness to be free from the stain and the tyranny of sin. And in other words, from the account given by Epaphras to Paul, that they had spiritual development needs. They were hungry. These saints wanted to know more, and this hunger in them... Made this syncretistic and false teaching appealing. And it was because of their hunger to grow and utterly, and the utter destructive nature of this teaching, that Epaphras would make a 1,300 mile journey to seek out Paul to both report on this church, to proclaim what had happened by the means of the gospel, but also to seek his wisdom and counsel. And importantly, to respond in such a way to help these saints not just expose the folly of this false teaching, because this alone wouldn't satisfy their need to grow, but to point and direct them rightly in the manner of spiritual growth in Christ. In other words, how are they to continue in Christ? And this is truly Truly a glorious thing, worthy of heavenly rejoicing when a soul is saved, when a sinner is converted and brought into the kingdom of God. But does not the eternality of this life speak of promise and point to glorious signposts, new life experiences that are only found in a continuing communion with the Lord? Wouldn't it be, would it be disappointing if there were no means of enlarging, of purifying our faith in Christ, in deepening our spiritual relationship with him, of growing in his grace, of intimately knowing our blessed Savior, of both seeing by faith and understanding the divine righteous standard by which all other aspects and realities in this life are compared And all the philosophies of this world sorely lack in comparison on the scale of truth. This is why Paul begins here in verse 6 with this this very important connected participle, then or un, to both transition to this new section, but also to refer back to the position and condition of these saints in Christ from verse 5. And Paul is also initiating his, his authoritative guidance to to help resolve these previous questions. But also he's presenting two truths before us. And these two truths must be held in balance and in harmony. First, Paul tells us that receiving Christ is not the consummation of the purpose of the gospel, but the beginning of the new life. It is our incredible inauguration into an eternal, ongoing growing relationship with God himself. In other words, foundations do not exist in and of themselves or just for themselves. It would be very absurd for anyone to go out, rent an excavator, dig a hole, set up a quarter-inch, half-inch, three-eighths-inch, one-inch rebar, set up forms, pour concrete, take the moldings down, walk away and say, wonderful. Wonderful. You would build upon this, would you not? Second, and in harmony with the first, Paul and other inspired writers teach us that all of our spiritual growth, our Christian life, must be consistent with its beginnings. Understanding this in our heart and mind is critical for to experience a genuine spirituality, to, to maintain, if you will, our lively affections toward Christ of godliness, of holiness, of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, and compassion for the lost. All aspects of our lives giving glory to God so that we will not be deluded. So let's examine these two verses, this sentence. And I've set up three headings with an intention to be alliterative. But to speak now personally an aspect of of our maturing in Christ, of our continuing in Christ as his disciples. How we are to to live, how we are to grow and develop Christian understanding. So I've assigned these, as I said, under three principles or headings. One, received. Two, rooted. And three, reinforced. Verse 6 again. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul's exhortation here, or actually wonderfully put in the, in the song we sang, his summons to believers concerning the Christian life, is, is in the form of an indicative imperative statement. And his use of the verb receive carries with it some significance in its use and its application here. Paul typically uses the verb paralumbano to refer to receiving or accepting of tradition about Christ and his significance. In other words, the teaching received and passed along or shared. We read this every month in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Similarly, in, in Philippians 4 9, these things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. However, in this particular verse, this singular and specific use of paralambano is carries with it a greater Christological focus. For Paul's not talking or referring or receiving teaching or tradition of the word, but of Christ himself. What does this mean to receive Christ? We we know very well through evangelism and outreach and talking to our neighbors and strangers that this phrase is sorely deficient in meaning and understanding today. It, It often typically expresses some conception of being a becoming a Christian which focuses on a person's initiative or acceptance of Jesus as a means of just escaping the penalty of sin and hell, but not from sin and its power. The context here severely refutes our postmodern popular perspective of accepting Christ like he is some shoe salesman just wanting to make your life here a little easier. But take a look now at the very words Paul uses to describe Jesus because they powerfully tell us what it means to receive him and to live and walk and have our being in him. This is the beauty of God's word and its piercing power. Paul speaks of Christ as the Christ Jesus, the Lord, for there's specific use of definite articles here in the Greek, to illuminate us to this, what it means to receive and live and walk. The Christ, the Messiah, one who has come to save his people, the only one. Jesus, Emmanuel, the very name of the Savior who has come to rescue his people from their sin. The Lord, he was not merely a good man, not merely our example, Not merely a Savior, but he is a Savior because he is Lord, he is God, and he is ruler of his people. And this verse, as you have received the Christ Jesus the Lord, was and still is the basic baptismal vow of the church and for those who declare Jesus as Lord of their lives. In other words, what we confessed when we first came to Christ And we're baptized is the way in which we are to live our lives daily in him with Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, as our Messiah. This is why Mark's gospel begins with the narrative of Christ as the appearance of authority that could not be denied. Mark 1 7. Immediately they left their nets and what? They followed him. So that all other authorities of any other kind, the will of man, the will of the flesh, ancient traditions, even those of demons, those of the natural order and creation, even the powers of death must all yield to him. And we must also consider that just as we are in Christ or possess Christ by faith, since we have received him through the power of the Spirit, We cannot consider our possession of Christ in the same way as we would, say, our retirement fund or a lot of land or any possession that we look at occasionally for interest. But No, Christ is our true food. He is like a fine meat that man feeds on and chews and digests and whose stomach works on continually. We are to live in on him and in him each and every day in the application of faith according to Christ's teachings in John 6. Our life is a continuation of action and motion. As our heart continues beating within, giving us as the principle of life, such as faith. Faith is Christ. Faith in Christ is a continual, active honing, a sharpening of Of my thoughts my desires my will on Christ as my own and of casting myself upon him to be mine living on him living in him so it is that our receiving of Christ is not the end it's certainly not merely a ticket to heaven it is the beginning of eternal life of spiritual life just the beginning of the Spirit's work within us. It inaugurates that glorious spiritual relationship, and it is the initiation, if you will, of the eternal decree of the Father fulfilled by the Son and now being made real in the heart and life of his elected child. Paul wants us to know that this receiving Christ is not something isolated Not something accomplished in the past, but it is continuing on in our daily experience. And coupled so very closely with this is the vital truth that all of our growth, our maturing, our progress in accomplishing what God has ordained for us must be consistent with its beginning. Our new life in Christ begins with professing Christ as Lord, and he must be Lord, as I said, to be Savior And so our lives must be consistent with this profession. Christ is the object of our faith, the only one who truly saves us, and it is within Christ that we are to dwell, in whom we are to walk, that we find our sphere of spiritual growth and development. We are totally and radically so dependent on him as he alone provides us all the spiritual resources we desperately need to be edified, to be trained in righteousness, to be holy as he is holy, to be built up in our relationship with God, all by his grace. Now, Paul continues with the imperative to walk in him, to continue to live in him. And Paul previously told us back in, in chapter 1, verse 10, that we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. So if you're asking Paul right now the question, just how does this work out? What does this look like for us today? Well, to begin with, going back to the, the original language, that the which is so important, the present form of this verb is telling us to remain where you are as in him, conducting your life as incorporated in him, let Christ be your Lord and no other. Let him establish and guide your values, your conduct, your thinking, all matters of your life. Paul goes further for us, though, in verse 7, he begins to add support to this imperative through the participles that he's going to use here. Because these are, these describe, these are used to describe for us what a person who walks in Christ looks like. And he's elaborating on the nature of the Christian life. And this brings us to our second principle, our second heading, rooted. Verse 7 says, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. Paul continues with three very unique metaphors in this verse. All participles in the passive voice that speak to the divine activity at work in the believer and that elaborate the nature of a walk or life of each believer. He starts with a horticultural metaphor, then architectural, and then finally a legal metaphor. All of these, along with his encompassing conclusion of of gratitude, continue to reflect this this parallelism of Paul's opening prayer that we read in chapter 1, to introduce these themes and now he is fleshing this out to provide us with with personal application in our lives. And it's a clear reminder to us that the Christian life always in simply put always invi- involves life living growth, not just a mere stagnant existence. We are to grow up in him according to four, Ephesians 4:15 in all aspects. For those who have received Christ, Paul is saying, you will grow. He expects our interest in spiritual growth, not in our own strength and power, but in the spiritual strength that is provided in our abiding in Christ. As we have been rooted in Christ, we are now to grow. And we understand this work of being rooted from the perfect tense used here. Erosomenoi, that is, is the settled state of the believer. And it's amazing and helpful to consider from, even from God's created order, this representation, this horticultural aspect. If you think back in Matthew 13 about the parable of the soils, of the seed being planted in the good soil, that soil that's been prepared by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, And when a seed is planted in good soil that has been tilled, it must be nourished. And there's a process of, of watering, or what's called imbibation. It's an imbibing that takes place where the right amount of water and nourishment is supplied. And with this, growth occurs, and there's a rupturing of the seed. And life comes forth, and there's a primary root that's that's shot down, a radical that's shot down into the soil to seek out sustenance, nourishment. And simultaneously, even in this very small seed, there's a work that's called an anaerobic breathing, a respiratory work that occurs where where life begins to, to take place, to come forth. And from this initiates a primary stem that shoots for the surface. And as that stem emerges it encounters light, growth occurs and fruit-bearing occurs. What a glorious example God has given us in this. Can you see this work of God in your life? He tills, he plants, he waters, he breathes, he feeds, he gives life and light. And from this supernatural work within a heart of flesh, there comes forth a tree bearing fruit. And what issues forth from this tree, from the fruit of this tree, but more seeds of the gospel? Truly, what love the Father has bestowed upon us. And we, as, as rooted believers, can only grow as we are built up in Christ, as we are nourished, as we are watered by his truth. And as we are fully dependent upon Christ, we cannot grow deeper in our knowledge of God and Christ by supplementing Christ or augmenting some the apostolic tradition that we now have in Scripture or even attempting to move on to something that others may declare is more profound than the richness of his word. Our souls will not thrive in love, joy, or holiness unless we are growing in Christ. Are we truly doing business with God in this respect? Are we examining ourselves with an eye to the sufficiency of Christ and seeing if there is fruit bearing? If you are walking according to your receiving Christ, you will be growing. Paul continues with another metaphor, architectural and form, and he implies the same divine work of providing a foundation to be built upon. The use of, of this architectural metaphor being built up, which in this case is, is a present tense participle, meaning this is an ongoing work of the believer dependent upon Christ. Just as it is paramount for any superstructure of steel and concrete to have a bedrock, a base from which to provide support, the strength and the extensive reach of the building to be erected. So it is with us. Even from Scripture, Matthew 7, the Lord stated that his foundation, his traditional truth is not only what a believer can build upon, but must build upon. Being built upon and with the foundational truths of our abiding in Christ, we're able to live in a way that exemplifies Christ. And in similar scriptural fashion from First Peter, we're all being integrated together as living stones into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Glory to God. Fundamentally, this building, this edifying work, is made real only through the equipping materials that the Lord has provided in his holy word, in prayer, in meditation, and being joined together as his body in the local assembly of the church. And Now we come to our our third guideline heading here is reinforced. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and in overflowing with gratitude. As I said, I tempted to use some alliteration with these guidelines and reinforced in relation to be to being established in the traditions that we have received from Christ, from Paul and to Epaphras. Paul's use of babio here carries with it a building upon the two previous participles, and it, and it emphasizes the significance of their stability in the gospel truths that the Colossians had received. And so it is with us. The faith they are established in is giving an emphasis on the reception of the gospel and the content of that message, and not simply referring to their personal faith. He's he's basically summarizing what he expects to happen for the believer. As a result of the first two of being rooted and being built up, you will be established in the content of the gospel. For a Christian to grow in knowledge of Christ can claim fuller understanding only insofar as he or she remains loyal to the saving gospel truths that they were first taught, which led them to Christ. And this threefold summons by Paul shows us that there's really no room for complacency in the Christian life in our dependence upon the Lord, in our walk and in our conduct. This is a powerful call to a holy, consistent way of life, a call to a fullness in spiritual stature and to pursue a a comprehensiveness of knowledge in Christ. But let it be true growth, which is always a a harmonious development of the saving gospel of Christ. And Paul's final active participial phrase is really a most telling one and deserves a unique point in this message, overflowing with gratitude. This is the first of at least six exhortatory references in this letter alone by Paul, of, of gratitude, of giving thanks and thanksgiving. And it's also very likely that these false teachers also spoke of an overflowing life or an abundant life as they would make much of, of the spiritual wealth that would accompany, accompany any compliance to what they said or what they were teaching. But anyone who followed their path would soon experience many perils perils of of spiritual conceit, boastfulness, just the type that Paul had dealt with previously in Corinth and and what he sees now sees in these teachers in Colossae. Listen to what he says later in verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, Inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Paul is showing us that those who lay down conditions of ascending and occupying some higher spiritual ground often leave or forsake the ground of grace in Christ. Isn't this the same heart condition and the attitude of the Pharisee who trusted in his own righteousness and discounting the grace of God, and even thanking God that he was not like others. Our overflowing, our bursting forth, our our spilling over in gratitude is the true witness of the Spirit's work within us that accompanies the present reality of walking in Christ. It is the overflow and outcome of that transforming work of the gospel within the mind and the heart of the believer in all things, toward God, toward one another, and as we will see later in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness present as a result of and not a feature added onto, but from the work of God being done by the Father within our souls. The voice of thanksgiving in the believer should speak without ceasing of the goodness of God, claiming nothing, seeing no merit in man, but only in God's giving, his mercy, not looking upon our own resources or even the great lack thereof, but fully expressing through thanksgiving, are dependence solely upon Christ. Just as it has been heard by the psalmist and the greatest of the apostles, so may it be in the heart and upon the lips of the weakest and youngest Christian upon his knees. Finally, how powerful is a heart overflowing with thanksgiving and gratitude toward the Father, and against the discouragements, the temptations, the distractions of the enemy. How quickly will praise to God diffuse and dispel the wiles of darkness? And not just in the spiritual realm, but also in our daily interactions with people, saved and unsaved, for many who face the daily criticisms and ridicule of their faith in Christ, and also in the deferring of praise to the only one who is worthy from a job well done. Oh, a heart and voice overflowing with thanksgiving is and must be a reality in our lives and a testimony to our Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for initiating and caring for our growth in relationship with yourself, with your Son, with your Holy Spirit, You, O Lord, have made us for yourself, and our hearts will not find any rest until they are resting in thee. Dear Lord, teach us, fill us with your Spirit so that we may experience the fullness of the object of our faith in Christ himself and the wonders, the power of his multifaceted grace and love and righteousness and mercy toward us. Oh, Father, may we never forget the first things, our first love. Lord, may we never question Christ's sufficiency. Lord, do not let us drift in any direction from your gospel, from our beloved Savior. Keep us by your power, and do not let us be brought down or distracted by our circumstances or by our present condition or our own estate, but knowing that where we are and all we have are truly gifts from you. And may we be daily fixing our hearts and our minds upon Christ and Christ alone in a radical trust and peace in him. Father, may we so walk in him, pursuing to know him in his word, And may the reality of his gospel power and his resurrection life usher forth in an overflow of thanksgiving to you, our loving Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.